0: For all of modern medicine's advances, there comes a time when treatments fall short and death is inevitable. Staring down a diagnosis of cancer, or ALS, can make a person feel helpless in the face of a painful and prolonged end to their life. But a handful of states have created laws to try to give people a choice. Medical Aid in Dying or made laws, allow physicians to prescribe terminally ill people life-ending medications instead of waiting.
1: That option, knowing you have that choice, that agency of your own life, that agency about your own life, is crucial.
0: Today, journalist Steven Petro shares what he's learned about medical aid in dying as a reporter and as a brother who watched his sister choose this option. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is
1: Tradeoffs. I'm Stephen Petro. I live in Hillsborough, North Carolina. I'm a contributing columnist for the Washington Post and a nonfiction book author. And among my various titles or monikers, I'm also Julie Petro-Cohen's brother. Stephen
0: wrote two columns about his sister Julie for the New York Times, one in 2022 about preparing for his sister Julie's death from ovarian cancer, and one last year about her decision to use New Jersey's law, what's called medical aid in dying, to end her life last summer. Stephen, in one word, how would you describe Julie? Troublemaker.
1: That is the word she used to describe herself. We have a brother. I am the oldest. Two years between Jay and me, and then five years between Julie and me. Julie was the troublemaker. I'm known as the instigator. And my beloved brother, who's the middle child, is the mediator. And um, when I think about her, what I most remember is her big smile and her big chiclet teeth. Are you saying your sister was buck-toothed? No, she was not bugged. She just had sort of big teeth and and a big smile. So they um they kind of radiated a lot of happiness and a lot of white, and
0: a lot of white. And 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 you called Julie your co-conspirator in life. You talked on the phone regularly.
2: I see them. I just felt like calling to say good morning, happy Friday.
0: You wrote in the New York Times about. How, when you were in college, the two of you would sneak out together to go to your respective queer bars and cover for each other with your parents. It's clear, Stephen, from reading your essays, just how close the two of you were. Is there a story that you've been thinking about since she passed that really captures your relationship?
1: I have to say, I have this sort of continuous loop going on in in my head these days. what I think about often is we were in Rhode Island after she was diagnosed. Uh, You know, the whole family is like enjoying themselves in kayaks. Julie and I are racing everywhere, trying to beat each other. And there's a photograph of us sort of getting to the imaginary finish line in our heads, you know, each of us raising our paddles and claiming victory. You know, and then I, I remember the night before she died. She had been in a lot of pain, they had tried more and more fentanyl, morphine to alleviate that. It was not working. And she had already made the decision that she would exercise medical aid and dying the following day, and the whole family was there. And we lay in bed together, holding her from behind, and we were just kind of we were just kind of talking softly. Um, but I was very much aware that was going to be the last time I would be holding her like that, that I would be able to for sure know that she heard me say i love her i asked her if we had any unfinished business she said no and she also thanked me for you know being not her number 1 fan but being her number 1 researcher and and instigator because whenever there was a problem getting something at the hospital or getting approval i had pretty good resources and a lot of resilience and put it all to work for her the
0: headline of your article in The Times was, I promised my sister I would write about how she chose to die. Stephen, why was that so important to her, do you think?
1: She wanted more people to have that choice. You know, currently, there are 10 states that have a legal medical aid in dying, plus the District of Columbia. She felt she was lucky by circumstance and happenstance to live in New Jersey, which is which is one of them. She felt she was lucky to have certain privileges. They had the income to pay the $900 that it cost to buy the end-of-life medications, which are often generally not covered by either public or private in insurance plans. She was a lawyer. She had been involved in social justice issues her whole life. And she was involved with the fight for marriage equality in New Jersey and, and nationally. These matters of, of parity and access mattered so much to Julie. In your reporting, Stephen, what have you
0: learned about who actually is using these laws, using getting medical assistance to uh, speed up death?
1: It's generally white people. I think it's of the individuals who die from medical aid and dying are white. It's a high skew towards uh, college educated, a high skew towards individuals who have been diagnosed with cancer. And then there's an economic skew as well that has a lot to do with both access, economic circumstances, cultural issues around death and dying. That feels like there's a differential there that results in unnecessary suffering and pain.
0: Julie was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer in 2017. You said she'd gone through, quote, a nine-hour surgery, six rounds of chemo, three recurrences, and two clinical trials before making the decision to pursue medical aid in dying. Stephen, can you walk us through the first time your sister told you that she wanted to die?
1: And she didn't want to die. But she didn't want to suffer. You know, there really wasn't a moment when this, this broke open. It was evolving. So I knew that both she and her wife, Maddie, um, I think it was in the second year after she was diagnosed, they took an online deaf and dying course to start to feel more comfortable talking between themselves and, and then with us. And so, you know, I talked with Julie when we would get a CT scans back and, and, and the treatment would fail. What were her prospects? You know, what were the next steps? So it just continued to be a conversation. You said she didn't want to die,
0: but she didn't want to suffer. I'm guessing that thought, that feeling, that wish, really became her North Star. And... I'm wondering, Stephen, when she first shared that with you, how did that land for
1: you? I had to undergo a bit of a journey when it came to medical aid and dying and the idea that Julie might do that, exercise that choice. There was part of me that didn't want her to do that, the idea. That in the same way, you know, you can plan a vacation or you can plan a cesarean, you can plan your death. That was very novel. That was, that was upsetting, you know, and I just couldn't even imagine how one prepares for that. I couldn't imagine how she prepared for that.
0: So when your sister says to you, I want to plan my death the way one would plan, as you said, a vacation... Or a cesarean, you found that novel concept upsetting. Fine, no judgment, but why?
1: It was an entirely new new concept. First time I was in their living room and they had a hospice social worker over, and they were talking about maid or the maid. I didn't know what they were talking about. I knew they didn't have a maid. And it's true for so many people, I've come to realize after talking and writing about Julie that we don't really understand what it is. Therefore, when things are, you know, not familiar, they're threatening in some way. So that that was that was a big part of it. And then the other was was you know, this sort of intertwined notion that to say, well, I'm pro-made, I'm pro-Julie, you know, making this choice, it felt like I was also saying, Well. I'm I'm pro-Julie dying. And um, I had to tease them apart. I had to get some help in teasing them apart. And um, Julie helped me do that and talking to, um, you know, to others did as well.
0: So what was it that finally got you to a place where you were comfortable enough to embrace what Julie wanted, no matter how uncomfortable it may have been for you?
1: You know, I really kind of moved along as I saw... As I saw her suffer. You know, to see someone truly suffering like that, and she was the kind of person who um you know could withstand a lot of pain. She was not a complainer, and she didn't even complain about this, but I would just hear her upstairs in her bedroom, really kind of crying out when she moved. And then very you know, very close to the end, her her shirt just happened to sort of ride up a little bit, and I hadn't you know, I hadn't seen her abdomen in a while and that's where that's where many of the tumors were and i and i wrote in that times piece it looked like the lunar landscape because you could see them pushing out and you could see these rounds and mounds it's like oh my god you know no wonder there's so much pain initially i wasn't going to talk about whatever conflicts i had about medical aid and dying but I kind of came around or evolved a little bit on that because I see so much in our culture when we talk about an issue that it's black and white. And I'm not black or white on this. And you know, I'm I'm not an advocate. I'm not carrying a sign. Um, I'm Julie's brother. And I'm complicated and 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 confused and and have tried to speak openly and authentically you know, about that in talking about medical aid and dying.
0: I got to think part of why you were willing to push yourself as much as you pushed yourself is because for the simple reason that you loved her and you trusted her and you wanted to do right by her.
1: It's very true, yes. And I still love her and I still trust her. And I still want to do right by her. She still talks to me and she still badgers me. And she still says she's going to beat me at hearts the next time. You now when it comes to medical aid and dying, it's been 30 years now and under 9,000 individuals have exercised that choice. That's in the entire United States. And so we don't know people who make this choice. And so I think part of you know what I'm thinking and what I'm doing is, well, I want you to know my sister. I want you to know... Everything about her and I want you to know, you know, how and why she made this decision and how important it felt to her to have that level of agency. You know, so that drives me. So I you know, in a way I hope that people who who listen to our interview will say afterwards, Okay, I know somebody. I know Julie Petro Cohen who died from MAID.
0: welcome back. We're talking with Stephen Petro, a journalist and author who has written recently about medical aid in dying, where terminally ill patients can take life-ending medications to die on their own terms. Stephen's sister, Julie Petro-Cohen, used medical aid in dying after six years of grappling with ovarian cancer. So most states, including New Jersey, where Julie lived, require a person to be mentally capable and have two doctors confirm there within six months of death. A person then has to make multiple requests, oral and written, with a several-day waiting period in between. How easy was it for Julie to navigate that process?
1: I wrote in the Times piece, the time is often not an asset that dying people have. Fortunately for Julie, she was she sort of moved things ahead early enough that None of these were encumbrances to her, but for some people it certainly is. I actually think one of the um, biggest issues is public awareness about medical aid and dying is so low. I mean, when I first wrote that Times piece, I heard from a, a medical ethicist who um, was now going to start teaching in his classes about this because it had never, it had never come up as, as as an issue in medical ethics. And I heard from an oncologist in Washington, D.C., where it is legal that, that he was unaware of it. And you know, what happens too often is that when it does pass in a state, there are not PSAs all over the place saying, come to the booth and get your medical aid and dying medication. It's kept on the QT. And I think that hinders, you know, educational campaigns, for sure. So
0: according to surveys, roughly 70% of Americans support these laws, these medical aid and dying laws, and have for a while now. But there's also, as you know, strong opposition. Much of it comes from religious groups. The Pope has spoken out against this. Uh, there are disability rights advocates suing to overturn California's aid in dying law. They worry that people with disabilities could be pressured into this to avoid being a burden. What do you make of these concerns,
1: Stephen? You know, of course we have to listen to, to all these groups. Nobody should be pushed to make this kind of decision. You know, so how do you balance? How do you balance those those two aspects? You know, when you look at the numbers, you know, 186 individuals in New Jersey, you know, that's since 2019, less than 9,000 nationwide. It does not seem that people are being pushed, but it's a conversation that needs to, to take place as part of this, this larger conversation. Because we need to make sure that we protect everybody.
0: You talked a couple minutes ago about this lack of public awareness, which certainly seems right. At the same time, it seems like, at least looking at things legislatively, there might be some sort of shift. Because you've got major medical groups, including the American Medical Association, that have softened their opposition to this in recent years. You've got 18 states right now that have legislation pending that would legalize medical aid in dying. Why do you think we're seeing more openness to this now, Stephen? What's changing?
1: You know, I said earlier that most of us don't know someone who has exercised medical aid in dying. But so many of us have seen loved ones suffer. And um, I think that is helping to To push attitudes along. I think also that, you know, when you look at polling, Americans generally are in favor of choice. And this is sort of one of those issues about choice. You know, my body, myself, my self determination.
3: In
0: preparation for this conversation, we asked you to send us some recordings of Julie to help us get to know her better. Thank you for doing that. That was very kind of you. Um, There's one that really stood out to me.
2: Hey, Stephen, it's Julie. Calling you back. um, Maddie and I
1: are at the beach. It's beautiful. Very calm. The water is glistening with the sun. Right at the front. Very happy. I'll talk you soon. Goodbye.
0: What do you hear when you listen to Julie's
1: voicemail? Well, there's a very big smile on my face, you know, despite a lot of the sadness we've just been talking about. And you know, I hear her zest for life. Issues with the person. She loved the most in the world her wife Maddie. She was at the place she loved the most in the world, which is the beach and the water. That's where we grew up. She was at the front of the beach. You know that was always very important to her. You know, I, I hear all of her aspects. You know, is, you know, she's not in the back row. She's in the front row. You know, and and she's out there and she's um, she's in the moment. She's in the moment, living and loving, and that's why I'm smiling. That's her gift. To those who knew her
0: you've explained very well why Julie wanted you to write about her end-of-life choices she knew you could help tell the story and you could help more people know somebody and get their arms around this. But why did why did this kid's sister want her older brother to do this? Why did she want it for you?
1: Hmm. She knew she knew it would be a gift. In the strangest way. She worried about how I would be after she died. She worried about how all of us would be, but I know she worried about me. So this gift allows me to be present with her a lot, which I'm grateful for. And even as um challenging as, you know, emotionally challenging as some of this interview has been, it makes me feel closer to her. Yeah, that's I think that's why.
0: In your columns in the New York Times, you captured a love between a brother and a sister, and I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us on Trade-Offs.
1: Thank you, Dan. I I really appreciate uh, what you did here. Thank you.
0: I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Trade-Offs. Lawmakers are pushing nonprofit hospitals to cover more free care in exchange for their tax breaks, but some say that's a double standard.
1: We don't require universities to provide free tuition to everybody who needs it. I don't understand why nonprofit hospitals are any different.
0: Why some hospitals worry the push to give away more charity care could backfire. Next time on
2: Tradeoffs. If you enjoyed today's conversation on trade offs, tell someone else about it. Call a friend, colleague, or government rep. Raise the level of discourse around healthcare policy. You can also leave a rating or a review wherever you subscribe to us the NPR app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. The Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Alex Olgan, editors Kate Cahan and Deborah Franklin, executive director Jessica Silverman, marketing director Catherine Dougal, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, with help from Kate Sepe and Kelly Osmondson, sound designers Cedric Wilson and Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Trade-Offs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Additional thanks to Sean Crowley. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Tori Bosch, Alika Gurrell, and Katie Giebenheim. Our media partner is Side Effects Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, Just Trust, West Health, the California Healthcare Foundation, the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. Our financial supporters are not involved in any decisions about our journalism. Views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders.